Well, if you brought a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter number four. We, uh, we've been talking about worship and what is worship. Worship is not a religious thing, uh, as some may think, and what you maybe think in your life, or you think about worship, that term uh, worship, you might think it's a religious thing. Well, I think, and Jesus thinks, that uh, it's not a religious thing, it's just a thing thing. That was profound, right? It's a, it's a life thing. It's a lifestyle that we lead. And it's not really something that we say. It's just how we live when we put something. So whatever it is that we put at the throne, on the throne of our life, whatever it is that the, that the song that we sang just a few minutes ago, the king of our hearts, what is the king of your heart? What is that? Well, hopefully it's, it's, the, it's Jesus. We hope that that's who it is. We're, we're just going to kind of give that away. And we've sort of given that away through this whole uh, series. But we want Jesus to be the king of your heart. It's potential, it's possibility, though, that the other things could be the king of your heart. Um, so why does it matter? Why does worship matter? Well, because there's war over your worship. There's war over your worship. There's, there's an enemy who wants to steal, he wants to kill, and he wants to destroy you. Uh, whether you believe that or not, uh, it's, it's, it's the truth. Um, you know, I, it's the reality of, of this world. We have, live in a physical world, but there's also a spiritual world, and there's a battle going on spiritually for your life. And what he wants to do is he wants to snare you. It's just the description in, in, the, in the scriptures are, are like a fisherman, you know, like somebody that has a hook and wants to snare a fish. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants, you, he wants your heart because Jesus said whatever it is your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the enemy wants your heart. He wants you to give your heart to something else that isn't God. And so maybe at some point in your life you said to yourself, I used to be passionate about God, but now I'm not anymore. I'm used to be you know, excited about you know, the things of God, and now I'm not so much anymore. What happened? Well, I don't think, and, and the scripture teaches, that you don't lose your passion for God. You give it away to something else. You put it into something else. You invest it into something else. You, you make something else <clears throat> in your life more of a priority, and therefore that becomes, and I know this is not, not in terms that we say today, but that becomes our idol. It becomes our God. Every single one of us in this room, every single person that's ever created is wired for worship. Every one of us. You are wired to worship. But the only thing that can fill that void of worship is Jesus. He's the only one that can fill that void, even though the enemy's saying, you can fill it with this, you can fill it with this, you can fill it with that, you can fill it with him, you can fill it with her, you can fill it with that object. And we go, maybe, I'll try that. And then he snared us. So there's war over our worship. Why does worship matter? Why does worship matter? Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. He's the one that can, only one that can fill that void in our life. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that gives us pure joy. He's the only one. He's worth it. John, who wrote this book, 
uh, believed that Jesus was worth it. John was a Jewish man, uh, fisherman, brother of James, the son of Zebedee. John and James were brothers. They had a nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder. Isn't that a pretty cool name that they were referring? It was because they had some spunk to them. As a matter of fact, at one time, John and James uh, were going through this city, and, and John asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know, you should just pray that the Father sends down lightning from heaven and kills all these people. I mean, that's kind of a guy with some spunk, and that's probably where he got their, they got their nickname, Sons of Thunder, you know, like that's just the kind of person he was. So John was convinced, though, John was absolutely convinced that Jesus was worth his worship. Jesus was worthy of it. Jesus was his Messiah. And John, being a Jewish man, he probably had a decent grasp of his own Jewish scriptures. We, we call this the Old Testament. Now, if you're talking to a Jew that's not a Messianic Jew, they would be offended if you called it the Old Testament because they still think it's their current testament. And so they call it the laws and the prophets. That's what they call their scripture. And so John knew his scripture well. And what's interesting is what John knew, and it's just really, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you can just throw up the the thousand-year period, it was written, the old Jewish scriptures, the laws and the prophets, written over a thousand years by 27 different authors, 300 spot-on references to Jesus being the Savior. John was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, and he was worth his worship. John was convinced of it. Now, this evidence, this is just, and I don't expect you to, you know, really, you know, kind of embrace this. And really, as, as New Testament, you know, Jesus followers, that's not really even, you know, the framework that we work off of. But as a Jewish man, John's looking at his scripture Jewish scripture, the law and the prophets, we call it the Old Testament. And the reason why the Old Testament is in our Bible is because of this reason. Over a thousand year period, 27 different authors all come together and say on 300 different references over a thousand year period. Did I mention that already? 27 different authors. There are over 300 references to Jesus being the Savior. And you know some of these references, one being his ancestry. Jesus had to come from the lineage of David. Nailed it. Jesus, not only did he have to come from the lineage of David, but he had to be, um, it was David's two sons. It wasn't just one of David's sons in his ancestry that followed the, the family tree down to Jesus. It was two of David's Sons, which was unheard of when it comes to ancestry. So it wasn't just Solomon who came from Joseph's side, who, by the way, Joseph wasn't even his biological father. Joseph was his legal father. But it came from also Mary's side, who Mary was his biological mother, but she came from and out of Nathan, who was one of David's sons. So it wasn't just Two of David, or it wasn't just one of David's sons, it was two of David's sons that pointed to Jesus. That's a big deal. I don't, I don't know if you know that or not, but that's a big deal. 
So I'll let you just keep that to yourself. Uh, so the other things that were references is not only is you know, his, the fact that he was born a virgin from a virgin, that was, that was foretold. Uh, the location, Bethlehem, that was told hundreds of years. As a matter of fact, five centuries before that. The time frame in which Jesus was born was foretold hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the time frame. He had to be born from the tribe of Judah. So before Judah, the tribe of Judah lost their identity after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Jesus had to be born before Judah lost their identity. They lost their identity after 70 AD. And so within that time frame, Jesus had to be born. Daniel, the, you know Daniel, Daniel the lion's den. Daniel predicted that you know, five centuries before that, that Messiah would have to be killed even before the temple's destruction. Another point of reference is that Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple when he was on earth 40 years before it happened. Jesus referenced the destruction of the temple, that it would take place. Nobody thought in a million years that anybody would be able to destroy the temple when it happened. 70 AD, Rome came in, destroyed the temple. Jesus's prophecy was fulfilled 40 years before it happened. I don't expect you to believe that Jesus is worth it because of that, but let's, let's keep going on. Jesus's life was heralded according to Old Testament references, writers, 27 different writers over a thousand year period. Jesus's life was references to the fact that there was to be a forerunner. Oh, by the way, there was a forerunner. His name was what? John the Baptist. You guys are smart crowd. This is a smart crowd in here. John the Baptist, he was going to be referenced as a, as a forerunner, um, that Jesus would do most of his ministry, excuse me, the Messiah would do most of its ministry in Galilee, that the Messiah would perform many miracles hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. They said, this is what you look for when you look for the Christ. This is what you look for. Oh, by the way, they said that he would die and he would be pierced. They're like, pierced? How would you be pierced? Most people die by stoning, being stoned to death. Why would he be pierced? But they said, Isaiah said, he's gonna be pierced for your iniquity. So they didn't really understand what that meant. Now we know what that means. His hands and his feet would be pierced to a Roman cross. Oh, the, the, it says hundreds, hundreds of years, hundreds of years. By the way, th this is irrefutable evidence. If, you, if you're wondering about, you know, where do, where do I get this? This is irrefutable. Skeptics alike, they, 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 they can't argue against this. this they, they said that he would, be, he would die, but his body wouldn't experience decay. By the way, after three days, your body, that's when your body starts to decay. They said he wouldn't, his body, his, they said his bones wouldn't be broken. His bones, none of his bones were broken. I mean, we can go on and on and on and on. And, and this isn't even really the reason why John believed that Jesus was worthy of worship. And these were his scriptures. They're not even really our scriptures. Those scriptures, Old Testament scriptures were written for a nation. They weren't even written for us. We have them in our Bible. The reason we have them in our Bible is because it points to Jesus. It shows Jesus being worthy of our worship. Oh, can I just mention this too? It even mentions that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend hundreds, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever on the scene that, that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. It even says how much. 30 pieces, thank you for answering that. It even says by 30 
pieces of silver that he would be betrayed by a friend. I mean, th- I mean, I, what did I give? Like 10? There's, there's 290 more. I don't have time for that. But you should. You should look it up. You should learn it. You should have it. I'll, I'll tell you why later. But John records, and here's what John records. Here's why John wrote his, because in John chapter number 20, John said, I want you to know, I want you to know that, that the reason why, you know, that I believe that Jesus is worthy of, of worship, he says, John tells us this in John 20, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Which book? The book of John, the book that you have in your New Testament, verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He says, I, I'm just going to write this down even though there is you know, irrefutable evidence supporting the fact that Jesus was who he says he was, said he claimed to be, and, and, and you know, what, what, what over a thousand-year period, what 27 different authors said you know, to look for, and he fulfills spot-on you know, over 300 different references to that. He says, but I'm writing this so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the Christ. The Christ is the anointed one, the chosen one, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and believing that you may have life in his name. John isn't just talking about eternal life. John is talking about the best life. The best life now, John is talking about. John's saying, listen, I want you to have the best life possible, and I also want you, more importantly, I want you to have eternal life with the Lord, but, but I, want you more, I want you to have the best life. And so John's saying, listen, how you have the best life is this, that you, and I wrote this account of Jesus' life. I wrote it who he's claimed to be, and I, want, I put it into all detail. You can fact check me if you want, and you'll, you'll discover that it's all true. It all happened. And, and for, for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, people have tried to do that. And, and have fallen short. Anybody that's interested in really investigating who Jesus is, you'll find that he really is who he claims to be. And so John's whole, whole you know, claim is not really about his Jewish scriptures. John's whole claim of that Jesus is the Messiah because he saw him alive. He saw a resurrected Jesus and said, that's him. I know 300 references of my Jewish scriptures point to Jesus as being the Christ, but I saw him die, and he was in the grave, and on the third day, he called it. He called a shot, by the way. Don't you love people that call their shot? I'm going to die on the third day. I'm going to rise, and he called it, and I saw him alive. Not just John, by the way. Matthew saw him alive. Mark saw him alive. Luke saw him alive. Peter saw him alive. James, his brother, saw him alive. Paul, who was once a persecutor of the church, turned back around and saw Jesus alive and said, you know what, I'm going to do a 180 in my life and I'm going to follow him because I believe, I don't just believe, I see that he is alive. And so these writers of our New Testament wrote the account. And John said, I just want, I'm just one reference that blows the water out of other references that say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So in John's account, boy, I don't even know if I'm going to get to the actual story that I'm going to look at. So in John's account, 
<laughs> I kind of went out on a tangent a little bit right there for a minute. John's account, he gives, I'm going I'm to work through this as fast as I possibly can, all right? Buckle up, everybody. You're like, I've already been buckled up. You're like, you started going, and I'm like, I don't have time for my seatbelt on. John's account, he, wrote, he writes for the first time that Jesus claims to be the Messiah himself. And it was the most unusual circumstance. It was to the most unlikely person. And, and John says, I, I just want you to understand that this is the, these are the kind of people, this is the kind of God that we have, the God that is looking for and pursuing and going after every single soul. And the story goes that at a time early in Jesus' ministry where John the Baptist and Jesus were sort of like, you know, getting people, gathering people. They were starting to foul people. There was a, John the Baptist had a lot of followers, but now John's followers were starting to move into Jesus' followers, which is what John wanted anyways. John was just a forerunner. He was just the one that was go, went ahead of Jesus and, and, and would say, he's the Lamb of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who our Jewish scriptures have been talking about, and he's going to be the one that's going to take away the sins of the world. And John never claimed that Jesus would take, you know, Jews away from their Roman oppression, even though that's what the Jews wanted. Jews just wanted to be taken away from the Roman oppression. But Jesus came not to take, you know, Jews or Hebrews away from Roman oppression, but Jesus came to take all of humanity out of sin's oppression. That's what Jesus came to do. And so John the Baptist is saying, he's the one, he's the one, he's the one. Well, now he's starting to point. Now, the Pharisees are starting to use that to leverage. So the Pharisees are going, who, you say, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are like the religious people at that time who Jesus was the hardest on. Like Jesus was like hanging out with those who were, you know, the lowest of lows, you know, the, the sort of the, that they would be considered to be the scum of the earth. And Jesus, those are the people that Jesus hung out with. And those that were like prestige and, and, you know, privileged and rich and had, you know, all these accolades and, and accomplishments, he didn't want anything to do with them. And they were like the religious folks and they're, and they're kind of annoyed that he's not really wanting to hang out with them and he's calling them out, you know, he's calling them hypocrites and they're getting upset about that. They're trying to trap him and he's coming back with them. You never try to trap Jesus, you know, he's too smart for that, you know, and he would, they would ask him a question and he would fire a question right back at them and they'd be, they'd be like, uh, I don't know what that, even what you're talking about, you know, they would just be, he would just dumbfound them and they, they, couldn't, get, they couldn't trap him. And so now they're trying to leverage Jesus and John. They're trying to leverage the two against them. And they're trying to, they're saying, hey, John, you know, they're trying to give, you know, sort of play into maybe John's, the Baptist's insecurities. Hey, John, there's more people following Jesus now. And John's probably going, oh, yeah, I know. But that's what I'm supposed to, you know, that's what I'm here for. He's the forerunner. I'm trying to point everybody that way. And so Jesus is, is trying not to cause any kind of friction. So Jesus decides, I'm going to get out of there. And so Jesus starts heading to Galilee. Now, when Jesus starts moving to Galilee, he gets, you know, sort of this, um, I don't know what it is. It was just the Lord, you know, the compulsion of God. God was, the Father was speaking to his heart to tell him to go through Samaritan, or Samaria. And so he decided that he was going to follow what, the God, what he thought God was going to do. So in his long journey, he comes to a city 
a village of, of, of Samaria called Sychar. And, G, and Jesus is there with his disciples. And he's now just to sort of show like, you know, his, his depravity, that he was man but also deity, that to show sort of his, his depravity. Jesus was tired, according to, the, according to John's account. Jesus was tired. And so Jesus said, you know, stops, and, and, and it tells us, John tells us that it was about noon. And Jesus stops at the well and just kind of resting at the well, as if this table is the well. He's just sort of resting at the well. It's noontime, so it's lunchtime. And when it's lunchtime, guys need to eat so they don't get hangry. And so the guys decided that they were going to go on ahead into the village of Sychar, and they were going to get some food. Jesus said, you guys go ahead and get some food. I'm going to stay back and just hang out here at the well. Well, while he was hanging out at the well, here comes a woman from the nearby village, a Samaritan woman, to draw water. She's walking up to the well, and she's got her you know, bucket in her hand, and she's ready to draw water. Now, this was an unusual time for a woman to come and draw water normally the women got up grabbed their buckets early in the morning you know before the sun rose and, and before it got too hot and they would draw water at that time but she decided that she was going to come in the at noon and draw water and so she's there drawing water and Jesus says to her hey give me something to drink and she was probably like what? Give me something to drink. Me? Yeah. Now, the reason why she probably reacted that way is because, first of all, Jesus was a rabbi. She knew it. Rabbis didn't have a conversation with women. As a matter of fact, men in public Jewish culture, men in public didn't really have much conversations with their own wives in public. And Jesus was a Jew, and she was a Samaritan, and Jews and Samaritans wouldn't be caught dead talking to each other. So you have all these unusual circumstances that Jesus says to her, hey, give me a drink of water. And she said, wait, why are you being a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And then Jesus said to her, listen, if you knew who I am, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink of water because the water that you get from me is like fresh living water that you'll never thirst again. And she looks at him and says, you don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a bucket to draw from. Why would you, why would you tell me that you, what you can give me? And by the way, this is Jacob's well. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's well. Jacob dug this well. Jacob drank from this well, him and his sons. And he's passed it off to us to draw from. Are you better than Jacob? And inside Jesus is going, uh-huh. <laughs> and Jesus said there again, listen, the water that you pull from this well, the water that you get from this well, you're gonna thirst again. But the water, the living water, the life spring that you can get from me, you'll never 
thirst again. And she goes, well, give me this water so I never have to come back here at noon. She's like sarcastic, you know, she's like, right, just give me this water. I don't, I don't want to even come back here. I come back here, I, you know, I'm supposed to come back here in the morning, but I don't want to, you know. And then Jesus said to her, listen, listen, I, okay, okay, well, go, why don't you go and get your husband? Whoa, wait a minute. And she said, oh, I don't have a husband. Oh, that's an interesting response. Jesus said, you have five husbands. And the man that you're living with now isn't even your husband. Oh, man. Now we're getting to the nitty-gritty, right? Here's what he said. Look, look it goes on. John, John is recording this, verse 20. Verse 20. Verse, John 4, verse 20. There it is. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. So she, Jesus is now hearing about like her husbands and how she had five husbands and the man that she's living with now doesn't have a husband. And this is where she goes. She deflects, man. Like she's like, we're not gonna talk about this. We're not talking about my life. We're gonna talk about worship. That's what we're gonna talk about. And Jesus is like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about worship. And she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that it is in Jerusalem, in this place, where men ought to worship. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, in other words, neither place. Neither place. See, the Samaritans believe that it was on the mountain of Gerizim, which is where Abraham offered a first sacrifice. And so her sort of her savior or her you know, person that she held in high regard was Abraham. And the Jews believed that, you know, that there was the whole covenant, all of the law and all of the prophets. So she held to, Samaritans held to, the first five books of Moses, you know, the Pentateuch. And then Jews hold to all of the rest of the scripture. And so Jesus is, that's sort of the discussion that they're having just to sort of kind of fill you in. And so she's saying, we worship on this mountain, but Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. And then he says, well, you worship what you do not know because she kind of had it wrong. The Jews had it right. That's kind of what he's referring to. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he's just declaring that out of this Jewish nation is where salvation will come. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Here it is. John's writing this for the very first time. Here's what he says in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. For the very first time. Come on, microphone. For the very first time, Jesus is declaring who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Chosen One. He's the one whom thousands over a thousand year period, 27 different authors have pointed to. He's the one. And he tells it 
to a Samaritan woman. That's a big deal because this, was, this means that someone who is a, not a perfect person, can we just say it that way? Somebody who doesn't have it all together, somebody who made some mistakes in their life, somebody who has made you know, other things more of a priority in their life, somebody who is not even a part of you know, the, the chosen people, God's people, the Jewish people, that she gets to hear that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that from him, from him, not from Jacob's well, not from any well that this world has to offer, but from Jesus, you can draw from him and he fills you up, that he will constantly fill you up. He will constantly satisfy. He will continually refresh. It is from the Jesus well, not from any other well, that we get life, not just eternal life, but the best life now. This is what he's telling her, and this is what John is writing, and the reason why John is writing is telling you that Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. He told her that the whom is vastly more important than the where. He was saying, listen, it's not about anymore. It's not about where you go and worship. We've talked about this here. It's not, this is not the building where worship happens. It's part of it. But it's just, it's not, it's to the whom. We gather here because there's chairs lined up, there's a sound system ready to go, and so it just makes it more convenient for me to share the whom. We're here not because of the where, we're here because of the whom. Are you with me? But the whom of worship can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. And here's what he told, told her. We're talking about worship. He told her that worship must have heart and head. That worship must have heart and our head. That worship is about not just our heart and our emotions and our feelings, even though that's a part of it. It's a part of it. And if you, if you feel an affection for God and a love for God, and you, it, just, it just wells up inside of you, great. That's great. But it can't just be an emotional thing. Because like emotions, when you rise, you're eventually going to crash. So your, your decisions are not just informed. Your choices and your actions in the life are not just informed by your heart. They're also informed here, too. That he says worship is not just your heart, but it's your head. But it also just can't be your head. It also just can't be about intellect and knowledge and, and, and you, know, you know, all that. It, it can't, it, it's got to be more than that. It's got to be both, he said. It's a good balance between both. It's, it's our heart, but it's also our head. It's our emotions, but it's also truth and knowing truth. I'm not a Jesus follower because it always makes me feel good. 
As a matter of fact, following Jesus oftentimes is hard. Anybody else, Jesus followers? It's hard to be a Jesus follower. You're not always accepted to be a Jesus follower. You're not always like, look, you know, look down. You're kind of looked down upon sometimes. Even your own family members go, kind of, man, you're going to church again, really? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's not always the feelings that come along with being a Jesus follower. It's about knowing, knowing why you believe what you believe. There's, there's, there's intellect involved in this. There's evidence that is displayed and shown that it's involved in this. I'm standing here today not because Jesus gives me warm, fuzzy feelings. I'm standing here today because I'm convinced that he's the Messiah. Just like John was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and he wrote about it because he wanted everyone who read his book. He didn't know about Matthew. He didn't know about Mark. He didn't know about Luke. He certainly didn't know about Paul at that time. He didn't even know about James at that time. But as he's writing his book, he's saying, I'm convinced, not because Christian is easy and feels good. I'm convinced because I know it's true. I mean, first century, second century, Christians, come on. They were dying. They were being impaled on stakes, set on fire for party decoration. You think they were followers of Jesus because it felt good? No. They were followers of Jesus because they were convinced that he was the Christ. And they were willing to die. Not for what they believed. People do that all the time. People die for what they believe all the time. No, 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 no. They died for what they saw. What they saw. Worship is not just a heart thing. It's also a head thing. Worship has to do with giving life. Jesus gave us life. Here's, what he, here's the way that he described it to her. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Anything from the world, anything from this world, this life, thirst again. You, you know that, don't we? Come on, you've tried things. How do, what does it do for you? You've tried things with your finances. You've tried things, you know, with substance. And eventually what became sort of a, was a habit or a pastime, now it becomes more of an addiction. And, you, and every time it's not enough. Every time. What, what would make you happier? Uh, one more dollar, said the richest man in the world at one point. Uh, what would make you more fulfilled? Uh, more, more alcohol. More pills. Those aren't doing it for me anymore because I've just sort of, you know, grown a tolerance, have a tolerance for it now. So now I just need more. How is it working out for us? Oh, more images? More sensuality everywhere we look? It's there. It's all around us. How is that going? 
better relationship. You dro- drop one, you try to find another. Oh, that isn't working. You're, because deep down in your soul, you're like going, I don't, this isn't, this isn't fix it. This didn't fix anything. Because it won't ever. What Jesus gave, he says in verse 14, but from the water that you drink from me, that I will give, never thirst. The water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You know what you should be like? You know what I should be like? Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. Don't you think? Don't you think you should be like more like Onesiphorus? I love Onesiphorus. Don't you love Onesiphorus? Oh, you don't know Onesiphorus? Oh, you wouldn't know Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was a friend of Paul's. Yeah. Nobody would know Onesiphorus. One time, one time, Onesiphorus is, is written about, Lord, grant me mercy to ho- the house of Onesiphorus. You know who's always for you? Onesiphorus. That was a bad joke. Onesiphorus is always for us. For he often refreshed me. He often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains. You know how you can be refreshing to somebody? Is that you're not ashamed. You're not, you're not ashamed of people. You're not ashamed of, you know, you, you don't, you don't, you know, you're not flaky. You don't come and go as you please. And whenever somebody is going through a hard time, you don't walk away. Somebody who is refreshing is just not ashamed of somebody. They're, they're with somebody in good times and in bad. That was Anessa Forrest. Verse 17, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He was somebody that, was, that just wanted to be a, a help. He wanted to be an encouragement. Boy, when, when Jesus has given you fountain of life, when Jesus is the fountain of life for you, that's what you're going to want to be for others. You're going to want to stick it out with people in good times and in bad. You're going to want to be there. You're going to want to search it out and try to be an encouragement to somebody when they need it the most. And that's what Anessa Forrest was. He was just that person. Look what else he says about him. And the Lord gave, grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well that services he rendered at Ephesus. He was just somebody that served people. He was somebody that served people. I think that when Jesus is your living well, and when you are and I am drawing from Jesus as the well of our life, as the water source of our life, then what's going to happen for you and for me is that we're going to be overflowing that in our life. We're going to be wanting to stick it out with people whenever they're going through good times, but also when they're going through bad times. That we're going to want to you know, be willing to just be an encouragement to somebody. We're going to seek somebody out that needs some, you know, some support. Some, some, you know, some, somebody to come alongside of them. That's what Anesiphorus did. And Anesiphorus was somebody who served people. When you... Have Jesus as the well and the source of your life. 
when you draw from him, worship is about giving life to others. It's about giving life to others. Now, I don't have time to go through these other ones. We'll get back to them next week. But man, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is the source. And I don't know how well other things are going for you, but I'm certain that they're not going well at all. And what I'm asking you to do, or what I'm, God's encouraging you to do here, is to draw from him. And when you draw from him, he's the one who gives life. And then you'll be one, and your worship will be about giving life. It won't be about you. It won't be about what makes you happy. It won't even be about what makes you satisfied. It will just be about what you can do for someone else. Because that's what worship is. Worship is giving life. Because that's what Jesus is. And John was absolutely convinced of it. So convinced that he wrote his book so that you and I will believe that he is the Christ. And by believing in him, you can have life. The best life today. Today. He gives life. Worship, your worship, my worship, is about giving life. Let's pray. God, um, John was convinced Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he was convinced. He was a witness of the time when Jesus hung back at the well, a well that would be, could draw from, that would continually leave people thirsty over and over and over again. And he wanted to extend to this unusual woman, this abnormal circumstance and conversation that would have never have happened with anyone else that he is the source that he is the fulfillment and that when you draw from him and nothing else no other wells but when you just draw from him that you get life and that you have enough springing up inside to give life that we have that you've provided that for us we're so grateful for that God, that's what worship looks like. That's what it looked like for her. And that's what it looks like for us. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the time that we had to gather together in this place. Even though it's not about the place, it's about you. That we've come here because you are the one who gives us what we need every single day. And we can draw from you every single day. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday, everybody.